Next, on the Agony Column podcast, author Jim Crace knows what fiction loves and why. Fiction loves hopes dash more than hopes realize. Fiction loves illness more than it likes good health. Fiction likes divorce more than it likes some long marriages. And why is that? Because fiction's got a purpose, and its purpose is to allow us to visit the dark corners of the universe and play out bad experiences before we actually encounter them. So we're ready for them. Jim Crace's new novel is The Pest House. Be prepared. Next, on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. The pest house occupant took comfort from her talismans that night. She passed the necklace through her fingers, recognizing and remembering the contours of each engraved link. She rubbed and stroked her piece of cloth. She smelled the cedar in the little box. Finally, she weighed the coins in her hands, the pennies and dimes and quarters that she had found among the pebbles on the river beach. She fingered all the images in the dark and tried to recognise the heads of people from the past, mostly short-haired men, one with a beard, in God we trust, one with a thickish ponytail bouncing on his neck, one heavy-chinned and satisfied. Was that the eagle she could feel? Where were the leafy sprigs and flaming torch? Was that the one-cent palace with the twelve great columns at the front? She dragged her nail across the disc to count every column and tried to find the tiny, seated, floating man within, the floating man whose storytellers said was Abraham and would come back to help America one day with his enormous promises. Jim Crace lives in Birmingham, England. He's the author of Being Dead, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award and was shortlisted for the Whitbread Fiction Prize. His novel Quarantine was named Whitbread Novel of the Year and shortlisted for the Booker Prize. His new novel is The Pest House. Welcome to the program, Jim. Thank you, Rick. Jim, your new novel is set in the United States. It's something of a post-apocalyptic novel. I'm wondering... As a resident of the United Kingdom, what led you to set your new novel in the United States? Because what people think about the United States is a huge subject for everybody in the world at the moment, I think. It's just not some obsession of mine because I've been to the States so often and love it so dearly when I'm here. It's the fact that everybody in every corner of the world uh, rubs up against the United States in one form or another every day. And so everybody in the world is entitled to a view about the United States in a way that maybe they're not entitled to and wouldn't have a view about Ecuador or Fiji or Iceland, for example. The reason that that is so is maybe the success story of the United States, that here is this nation which makes such great Coca-Cola and such great coffee and such great films that they've invaded everywhere. I mean, recently I went to the cinema with my wife just down the road in Birmingham and there were 14 films showing and 12 of them were American movies. So that's a kind of success story. On the other side, I went to Cambodia last year to the most remote village um, on the Thai border, really remote. I had to walk through a minefield to get there. No sanitation, no electricity, no um, medicine to cure the AIDS and the uh, malaria that are killing people there. But what do I see when I arrive in this cut-off village at the end of the universe? A little boy running towards me in a, in a Nike T-shirt 
no trousers but a Nike t-shirt, empty Coca-Cola cans, and blaring out from a battery-driven television set an old episode of The High Chaparral, which you're too too young to remember, but it's an old black-and-white American TV uh, programme about America. And, of course, you know, everybody throughout the world embraces that, this American dream, the the American success story. We, We all embrace it, even though we pretend that we don't. But still, our feelings about it are ambiguous, all of our feelings, whether you're Cambodian or British or whatever it is. And the ambiguity has got to do with the fact that we fear that the world is becoming homogenized. Now, that's not America's fault, but it is, it is a natural response. So when you add those two things together, the, the, the love that one has for America, or I have for America when I'm in it, and the ambiguity I feel about the homogenization of the world in the American, in the American image, and then you mix in the... Uh, the huge feeling of sodality that I had with America and particularly New Yorkers after 9-11 and then pile on top of that um, my unhappiness about American foreign policy and, and add on to that the fact that um, it's not just Coca-Cola and, uh, and films that are going abroad, it's also the CIA and it's also uniforms and it's also bombs and it's also Humvees. You mix, mix all that in together and what you come up with is a subject which has to be attended to So that's why I wrote about it. And if I can summarise in just a sentence, this ambiguity that I felt about America was was illustrated brilliantly at the beginning of the Iraq war when there was um, an opinion poll carried out, about 100 questions, asking people from Lebanon and uh, and Syria, all in 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 the Near East, what they thought about world issues. Question number seven, I think it was, which country in the world do you most despise? Now, you know what the answer is going to be because you've, t- you've taken quite a beating as a nation. 84% the United States of America. Many questions later, turn the page, another question. Which country in the world would you most like to emigrate to? 83% the United States of America. Now, this is fascinating. It's worthy of fiction. So that, to some extent, was one of the major impulses for me writing a book and wanting to set it in America. This isn't the America that we know in this novel is set in. It's set in a very different America in which the past and the future have been essentially stripped away. Mm. Tell mm. us a little bit about how you created this setting and why you decided to use this setting to talk about America. Well, the impulse that I've just described wanted me to answer a question. That's, that's what I do in my books. I'm not an autobiographical writer. I, I ask questions and try and find out answers in my pompous way. The, uh, the question that I w- wanted to ask myself was, um, I, where do I stand on this love-hate relationship with, with America? Do I love it more than I hate it? You know, what, what, am, what are my feelings? Now, f- if you're going to answer that question uh, in, a, in a leaflet, then you're just going to get political um, a ranting. But fiction approaches questions in a different way. Fiction is by nature, I think, very mischievous. And um, it can be impish and, and, and ill-mannered without doing any real harm. So in, in its mischievous way, this fiction decided, well, let's see what we'll do with America. Let's see what we can discover about America. If we, if we are uneasy about America being so completely on the top of the pile, with all the, the rest of the world deferring it to it, what would happen if we just invented an America that was at the bottom of the pile, with it deferring to the rest of the world? So that was the starting point. Now, what would be the bottom of the pile for a country like America? 
Well, America, like the UK, of course, is a country which is um, built on success and on, 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 on making things and on technology and comfort. In fact, it's a nation uh, which, again, like the United Kingdom and, the, and Western Europe, it's a, a nation in which the ways of humankind seem to be beyond nature. You know, they've gone, we, we're not in touch with the, the planet anymore because we've got so many gadgets and, 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 and ways of doing things and wealth and such like. So, so the starting point was to decide to strip America of all those things. Stripping America of all of its gadgets and all of its uh, industry and all, its, all of its technology achieved two things at the same time. Um, it put it at the bottom of the pile, number one. And secondly, it reunited my American characters with the earth from which I think our societies have become separated. You know, they were, instead of sitting around uh, gas-fired um, central heating uh, rooms, if they wanted to be warm, they'd have to strike a stone, make a fire, and sit with their faces hot in front of the flames, but their their colds back against uh, their, their, their backs cold against the night. So that was the idea, that to give America a medieval future. One of the things that I found most fascinating about this book was the idea of the way you have eliminated history from from both both ends of history from this book. Nobody knows much or thinks much about the past, nor do they have much of a concept of the future. We live in a society where we're really obsessed with the future, and we have this kind of science fiction view of the future that it involves technology and all this other stuff. But really, when you think about it, today is always pretty much like tomorrow mm. and pretty much like yesterday. There's not a lot of change that happens. Mm. So in this book, that's become very manifest. Well, it came about, first of all, because... Because if, if America has been reduced to some, to some uh, uh, dystopic future, I don't specify what has caused it, but there are various things that could have caused it. Clearly the population is tiny in America. Maybe there's been a pandemic. Maybe there's been some terrible diseases cross species. Maybe there's, it's a nuclear meltdown. Maybe it's a result of global warming, warming. But whatever has caused it, you can be sure that the infrastructure doesn't hold when the po population collapses. We have, what, how many million people in America? Remind me, 240,000 okay. million, is it? I think, yeah, we're yeah. heading towards 300 million. Yeah. Well, yes, I've just been flying across America today, and um, it's interesting to see how little wilderness there really is left, although it is a country of, of wildernesses. But if, it, if you imagine America with maybe only one in ten of the, the people who are alive now still being alive, that level of population, the infrastructure will fall down. And it's not just the infrastructure, like the roads that will fall down and the telecommunications, but also the mythology and the culture and, and the handed-on history and publishing, all of those kind of things. I mean, I was quite... I was having fun in a way. I wanted it to be medieval. And I wanted the people to be as illiterate as people were in medieval times. Maybe in my invented America there are a few people that can still read, but there are a few texts. And that would have been the same in 13th century England. There would have been a very few number of people that could read, and there would be few texts. Most people uh, would get then their um, beliefs and their, their narrations from word of mouth. So it's true what you say to some extent that history is dead, but only history that exists between in book covers... There is, there's another kind of history that still is flourishing, personal history. Um, the history of folklore is very, very strong in my book. 
the value of myths and uh, the value of medicine, which is uh, by, which is controlled by handed down law rather than by um, by technology. So there is a, there are things which have become stronger. Not everything is weakened. Some things have become stronger, and that is in keeping with medieval societies. We have a lot of a drive these days in America towards. We're trying. Everybody wants to have a more local economy, mm. and that's one of the things you do in this novel really well. Is you reduce uh, America from a, a global power to a local power. There, there's no not much awareness of the world beyond how far you could walk in no. a couple of days. No, isn't that wonderful? I love those stories. I recently I read a couple of biographies of um, well-known British writers. You know, yes, definitely well-known. And one of them was about Coleridge, and uh, he said he wrote in his um, diary uh, he was down in Dorset somewhere or, or Somerset. I hear that Wordsworth is in the next county. I will walk over and see him. Now that was a seven-day walk, and that and and it wasn't sort of said in an heroic admire me way. It was just that was the nature of the universe in those days. You walked wherever you wanted to go, and I've read a biography of Shakespeare, the the, the Peter um, Ackroyd, wonderful Peter Ackroyd uh, uh, biography of Shakespeare in which it talked about his return trips to his home in Stratford-upon-Avon and how long it took and, uh, you know, how many horses he wore out and ha he had to overnight in Oxford. Now, I live just near Stratford-upon-Avon. I live in South Birmingham. I can be in Stratford-upon-Avon in, in 40 minutes and I can be in London in an, in an hour and 40 minutes. And that's what I meant when I said we'd lost contact. Uh, humankind has lost contact. Um, with the natural world, that the space between the natural world and, and, the, and the, the human life is widening and widening and widening. And of course, we love that. We, we, we embrace all of those um, new technologies. We love getting on fast trains and being somewhere quickly. But the cost of anything new worth having is something old worth keeping. That's always been one of my themes. So the new worth having is the fast train from Birmingham to London. The old worth keeping is the deep engagement you would have with the countryside if you had to walk it. The landscape is really beautifully described in this novel, and it's beautifully invoked. I'm wondering if you could talk about how you married the language to the landscape and, and how your themes grew out of the language in the landscape. Mm. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm always happy to try and answer questions, but there's something I want to say is that Actually, in some ways, I'm the last person to answer any of these questions very well. And that's uh, because if writing is going well, then there's a level of abandonment is taking place, that, that you're, not, you're not doing things as consciously as you might be doing them if you're writing a work of, uh, of nonfiction. So there is an element of control, of course. A writer has to have skill, but there's an element of abandonment as well. So skill, you know, so control and abandonment, that's a strange mixture. But that's what you need to, to, write, to write fiction, I think. The control of the skills that you've learned, but abandonment to the spirit of narrative. So I can give you some wise descriptions about how I write about natural history, but the truth of the matter is that it's instinctive um, and intuitive to write in that way about landscape. And the reason it can be instinctive and intuitive with me is because my personal life is immersed in natural history and in landscape because I spend um, uh, every moment that I have uh, taking long walks. All of my holidays are long walking holidays. And uh, for the last 40 years, I've been a keen natural historian. You know, I know about the natural history of the United States, not as well as the UK, but I know about it pretty well. So all of that is a useful background, 
for when the book ab abandons you. But when I'm writing the actual text, it's not a concentrated act. It's not a kind of a knowing act. It's almost as if I'm, I'm extemporising on a piano, like a jazz man. And because I know the rules, I'm not hitting any bum notes. It's quite easy for me to do those things, in fact. Someone asked me the other day, they read a, a, on a British radio show, they read a sentence out, and, uh, which was a description of landscape from this book. And they said, they were buttering me up, they said, that's such a beautiful sentence, that must have taken you a fortnight to write. But the truth of the matter is, it took me a second to write it. The things that take you a long time to write are the things you're bad at. So I'm bad at, I, you know, I can't do dialogue, my dialogue's terrible. And you'll find an example of, of dialogue in the, in, in, um, the pest house. And uh, it, will, it, it's, it will still be bad, but that's what took me a fortnight to get bad. But the natural history stuff, it's just my nature. That's, that's the kind of person I am, and I'm afraid I can do it easily. Tell us a little bit about some of the myths that you talk about in this book. You, you mentioned earlier there's some wonderful folk medicine in this, and there's a, 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 a lovely perception that... Um, Franklin has about curing something by magic. He's wondering if he might be able to summon the magic to cure the, the woman he finds in the pest house. And tell us a little bit about some of the, the folk remedies and the medicine that, that goes into this, especially the pigeon one. I, I mm. thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. Well, they're fascinating in a, in a false way because they're, kind of, they're made up. But I understand the nature of folklore, and it's fun to make up your own versions of fake lore. The pigeon thing is that the idea was that um, if somebody's ill, then you you capture a bird, you strap the bird to the bare feet of the, of, the, um, of the person that is ill, and the illness passes through to the pigeon. And then once the pigeon has died, then um, uh, you bury the pigeon and you're burying the illness and the person is cured. Uh, I think that's what it was. Um, trouble with when you make things up, you, um, like with all lies, you forget the details. Um, and uh, again, I just have a folklore imagination I can I can invent those things and uh, and I enjoy doing them, but but it's more than that. It's it's placing a spotlight on the importance of narrative. A narrative isn't just something that exists for people who read fiction. Narrative has also got a place in how we deal with uh, curing disease, because after all, this story about the pigeon—it's just a story, just a comforting story. That's what it is. You know, your your brother or your or your son or your daughter are ill. They want something to happen. So you tell them a story. You tell them that the, the illness can come from your feet into the pigeon. You even go and get the pigeon as evidence of the story, and you really do tie it to the feet of the child. But it's just a story. It doesn't cure illness, tying, tying a, a pigeon to your feet. But the story is genuinely comforting, so the comfort is real. And you can follow all that narrative all the way through to the big narratives of, of religions, which say to you, for example, um, oh, don't worry about death. Death is merely going into another room. Well, of course it's not. Death is forever and it's final. But the, so the comfort is, the, 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 the story is false, but the comfort is real. So, so all of these little bits of folklore that I'm telling, that I make up, and the mythology, they're not, not there, there just to be impish. They're not just there to be self-indulgent. They're to remind us that narrative is an important ingredient in every aspect of our lives and has been since uh, before, was before 
the printed word came and will be after the printed word has finished. Um, and we should bear in mind that of all the creatures in the universe, the two million creatures in the universe, there's only one narrative creature amongst them, and that is humankind. And therefore, to dismiss narrative as being unimportant is as crazy as dismissing consciousness as being unimportant. One of the things you've created in this book is this disease, the flux. It seems very realistic. I, I wonder if you tell us a little bit about creating a disease and the way that you use the disease in the book, it, it gets a lot of use in terms of plot points. I mean, you used to drive the plot really well mm. in, in a variety of, of fashions. Yes, you never quite know what's going to drive the plot when um, uh, when you start off. And you, uh, I, I always start off with a kind of a blank sheet in a way. I've got my subject matters, the ones that I've described to you, the, the, the issues I want to address. And then I just hope that the plot will come to my aid. But I knew pretty early on that, the flux was going to be important. And maybe I can, I, I can explain really also where the title of the book comes on because it, it, it's, the same, it's the same answer. 20 years ago, when my first book came out and was sold for quite a lot of money in America, I said to my wife, we're going to spend some of that money. I've always wanted to go to the Isles of Scilly, which are a group of islands 35 miles off the end of the coast of um, Cornwall. Let's go. Let's drop our bags. Let's go now. Take, take the kids. We can spend some money. We've got some money finally. So we went to the Isles of Scilly, and we have been going to the Isles of Scilly uh, several times a year for a long time ever since. So it's our second home, pretty much. Now, the Isles of Scilly are 150 islands, of which five are inhabited and the rest are uninhabited. And there's one uninhabited island that I always go to whenever I'm there, and it's called St. Helens. It has one building on it, and this building is, you know, just a, a mess of stone at the moment. But in the 1760s it was built because an Act of Parliament said any boat arriving in the British Isles, within sight of the British Isles, in fact, carrying passengers or, or goods or whatever it had on board, every single person on that boat would be inspected, and if they showed any sign at all of an illness, of the flux, as I call it in this book, any sign of illness at all, um, they would be taken off the boat and put in that building, which was a quarantine station. Now, you can imagine, you might just have acne, or you might have rosacea, or you might just be red-cheeked, but they would think that could be cholera, that could be typhoid, put them in the quarantine station. Well, of course, they wouldn't recover, because even if they only had acne, there was already someone there that did have typhoid, and they'd die. And there are lots of graves of people who died in exactly those circumstances. Now, for a writer, that was an incredibly interesting subject matter for me, and, and you read the book, you'll see how it shows up. Um, because it, it was one of the eternal themes of literature. It was about emigration, you know, the people on the boat, full of hope. In fact, they're so full of hope, they're only 35 miles from the cliffs of, of Cornwall. They can see the land that they've been seeking, just, you know, but with the naked eye. But hope's dashed. They've got hopes, but their hopes are dashed at the last moment, and they die, they don't make it. And that's always appealing to, uh, it was appealing to me anyway, this writer of fiction, because fiction loves hopes dashed. Fiction loves hopes dashed more than hopes realised. Fiction loves illness more than it likes good health. Fiction likes divorce more than it likes some long marriages. And why is that? Because fiction's got a purpose, and its purpose is to allow us to, to visit the dark corners of the universe and play out bad experiences before we actually encounter them, so we're ready for them. So, and the other key, of course, was that that building, that, that quarantine station, was called the Pest House. 
So there I had this secondary theme apart from my American theme. So when I started to write the book on my American theme, I thought, where will I start it? Being the kind of writer I am, I wanted a metaphor. So we're talking about a metaphor for, for what I was thinking of as a sick nation. And immediately this stored away idea of the pest house and migration came flooding in. And I thought, right, we start off at a pest house. We use the pest house as a, as a, as a metaphor for the United States. We, we use the illness as a metaphor for the United States. And it was almost a gift to me. I thought that I'd, I knew I'd got a subject matter, but I had no plot. But as soon as I'd, I realised I could bring in the pest house and the flux, I had a driving force behind my narrative. And that's the great thing, you know. If you... Story, stories are so generous. They give you... They give you impulses if you only trust them. One of the things I really loved about this book was that the survival uh, of America, the, the, the thing that seems to really be at the core of America is this kind of survival of etiquette, politesse, yeah. manners, manners, custom. It's all through this book where we hear people, there's a really great parable about the the sheep and the chicken, the 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 man who, oh, yes. who steals okay, the chicken yeah. Yeah. to to give his guest, and and then yeah. ends up giving up three of his sheep to the person from whom he stole the chicken. Well, it's a kind of Arab style hospitality, which I've also encountered. Um, I remember when I first visited the United States. Uh, gosh, when was that? Um, way back. I mean, in the early seventies, as a young man, and I was hitchhiking everywhere, um, which I guess was a fairly risky thing to do. But the hospitality of the people that picked me up, the, you know, all kinds of people in all kinds of places with all kinds of, of um, levels of poverty or, or, or wealth or whatever, with all types of different cars, uh, would share meals with me, would take me off camping, would invite me into their home, would do my washing. You know, um, 3,000 miles uh, uh, cross-country cross hospitality, and I love that. Because in England, there is hospitality in, in England, but... Um, in England, we're too much controlled by proprieties which are not as warm as that. Our proprieties are colder. You know, we, we blush and stutter through life in the United Kingdom. Whereas what I've loved about America is the way in which there's a kind of homespun expansiveness about it, as you'd expect from a nation which, was, which is so historically based on, on hope, on finding a better, a, a better life. So, uh, yes, I'm glad that, you, that you've noticed that because... Uh, uh, in a way, the overall message of this book and the place where the optimism of this book is found is not that America has behaved badly in foreign policy. And it's not that America has homogenized the world. You know, those are, those are the subjects I thought would come to the top. What this book is really saying is that, that if there are dystopias, what can we find in dystopias which will make us feel optimistic? And the answer, as you've hinted, the answer actually is a sloppy, old, sentimental, cliched answer. And the reason why it's cliched is because it's always being said. And the reason why it's always being said is because it's true. And that is the thing that survives in those bad times is, is human relationships based on love and respect and families and children. And it seems to me that against my expectations, I've ended up with a book which is about optimism rather than about 
the faults of a nation. There's a really interesting love story in this novel. And it's not the love story, I think, as a reader, I didn't expect to encounter this love story. It, it's the, the, a woman who falls in, in love with a baby that's not hers. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of two love stories, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Margaret, my main character. An omen of bad luck. A woman red, of bad luck. With her red hair. Yes. But so admirable, Margaret. I have to admit, I fell in love with Margaret while I was writing her. You know, I started off like the reader, knowing nothing about her. She came onto the scene. Um, and I suppose th- another truth has to be admitted um, is that when you spend a lot of time alone in front of a word processor writing uh, novels as I do, you know, with your neighbours avoiding you and no one calling and, and no one wanting to hear you talk about your boring job, and certainly my wife when she comes home, um, you, can, you, you, you want to enjoy yourself. You want to surround yourself with issues that you're interested in and, uh, and, and create landscapes that stimulate you, make things up that make you, make you laugh, if no one else, but also to have characters that you can like. And Margaret was somebody who is exactly in the mould of the kind of woman I like, if I can give this away. The kind of woman I really like is not some beauty, some Hollywood beauty, in which one equates um, virtue with good looks, you know, and good fortune with good looks, because that seems to me to be actually rather facile and stupid to make those connections. But what I've always liked and what I like in my fiction is, is women who are spirited and adventurous and tough and admirable and blemished, because that's what real people are like. And Margaret is all of those things. She falls in love with two people and a horse during the process of this book. She falls in love with a, a, a bloke called uh, Franklin, who's a lesser person than her. And it seemed to me essential that he should be a lesser person because it was no good making Margaret admirable if, if her... The things that, that she was good at, the things that made us admire her, were only ratified by the reward of having an even more admirable man. You know, that's what Hollywood does too often. It, uh, it validates an admirable woman by giving her an even more handsome, even braver man. I wanted her to be less than him so that she validated herself. Those two are lovers, but they've never kissed. They're almost like man and wife. They haven't kissed, they haven't had a relationship. But I desperately wanted a family. And she encounters a young a girl on the way, a, a little girl. And I won't give away the details of how she finds her. But he's never quite sure, and I'm not sure now, whether that little girl has been stolen or whether she's been rescued. But certainly at the end of the book, we have this strange, hope-filled scene of the weirdest nuclear family in the world a man and woman who've never had sex with each other, never even kissed, their child who isn't their child, and their horse standing on a ridge in the middle of America, facing westward, dreaming of their acre of land or whatever hope they have. Um, Like so many generations and so many hundreds of years and decades of Americans beforehand. And it's an optimistic image, but I, I love the this book has a very peculiar um, conflict built into it, and, and I think that's one of the, the the things that makes it so affecting is that there's a, a certain kind of positive outlook, but it's not a the experiences aren't really happy. I mean, right. this is this is optimism amidst mass death. 
Yeah, but where are you going to get optimism from that's worth anything? And, you know, let's return to what I was saying about the, the Christian religions, the optimism of saying you die, but you're only going to another room. Well, that's optimistic, but it's flimsy. It's flimsy and it's infantile. But if you can look, as I did with my book, Being Dead, if you can look at the absolute facts of what death represents, the putrefaction, the finality, if you can look at that and still feel optimistic, then that's an optimism which is made from granite. And so I've always thought that, you know, the optimism needs to be taken from dark places. A lot of people think that I'm a, a pessimistic person, that I'm a dark person. Absolutely not. My books always have an optimistic um, slant to them, but you have to drag yourself through mire to find it. That's the best optimism. Tell us a little bit about the religion you create here. And this is another thing that we don't expect to find in a book in which America's been devastated. We've got people with this plague. Humor. There's some really nice humor in in this religious community. and, And yet you don't belittle the religious community. It's just a, a, a humor of observation. Tell us a little bit about the arc and some of the humor that you get out of that. Well, I'm not sure that I don't belittle them. Um, uh, I, I, um, I wanted to deliver a blow against um, my least favorite group of Americans, the Southern Baptists, who I think of are wiping a stain over the nation as we speak, as they come up with uh, more and more medieval ideas. How could you write a book about America's medieval future without having the um, the Southern Baptists um, involved? Um, so that was a starting point. But I didn't want to proselytize. I didn't want to seem to, uh, uh, to seem to be nagging the reader. I wanted to deal with the whole issue of of this future's hostility towards technology and 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 the world of metal. Right, um, the metal the metal themes are really fantastic. <laughs> I so I thought that. I would bring that in as well. I wanted to have a satire of uh, of lazy men, men who um, you know the, the laziest men in the world. There's a group. I should explain that there's a, a religious group called the Finger Baptists, and there there are several hierarchies. The, there are really Finger Baptists. No, they're not. Oh, no, no, oh. they're not. Oh no, for the sake <laughs> of the book, I'm just explaining the book. The bottom hierarchy are the people who stay in the ark and are just living there and working for the um the finger baptists and getting the the rewards of uh, of of um a safe bed and and and, uh, and and food every day and then there's the disciples people who walk around and uh, and uh, wear a wear a mark of uh, of their of their holiness but their job is to do the work of the really holy um uh, finger baptists and these these disciples, they strip you, anyone who has metal on them, they strip them of all their metal. They've got metal buttons, they're taken away. They're not allowed to have any tools because metal is uh, is God's work. Metal is the uh, is the curse of the world. So this was kind of a, like a satire of, uh, of the post-industrial world, but kind of very hidden. But the worst ones are the 20 men at the middle, the hierarchy, the 20 men at the middle of the um, finger baptists who are called the helpless gentlemen. Now, there's probably lots of women uh, listening to this show who will say, well, I'm married to one of those. Um, well, the helpless gentlemen are so holy that, and so unwilling to um, besmirch their hands with the works of the devil that they will do nothing. They will lift a finger to do nothing. Um, so they have their, wi- their bottoms wiped. 
um, by disciples. Uh, they ha- they're fed by disciples. They're dressed by disciples. They have disciples come along and tip water into their um, into their mouths. Their teeth are cleaned by disciples. It's even rumored that they're masturbated by disciples. The result is that these twenty um, guys that have atrophied arms. Their arms have become limp as evidence of their of their holiness. So yeah, I have a lot of fun with those things. Um, and uh, I'm glad you found it amusing because it's uh, it's also quite eerie. So it's a strange mix of things. It's you know it's funny and it's serious and and I'm satirizing several things at once, um, and I'm also to some extent sat- satirizing what I went through today when I went uh, and picked up a flight at Boston to fly here, and everyone had to turn out all of their um, uh, all of the metal out of their pockets and their bags and their computers just to get onto the great metal tube in the sky. It, it was really that that was. Very effective and, and uh, eerie to read that rendered into a medieval setting. That no matter how much we strip away, there's still got to be a transportation security administration yeah. Yeah. Uh, checkpoint that through which we have to go. I remember the day when I wrote that, and I knew that that's what I was doing, and that that was what it was directly satirizing. And thinking, surely you can't get away with that. Surely you're not even going to do it. But I was chuckling to myself so much when I when I was writing that I, I had to let it happen. One thing that that I find really fascinating ab- about this book um, are are the Boses. Yeah, they're they're a really interesting couple because they seem to be the it's really the the distillation of, of Middle America, mm. come yeah. brought to life in, in a medieval America, which which offers you a chance to have some interesting conflicts. Mm. Yeah, they've lost. They're a trading couple. The son is a uh, the the son is a, um, a, a fisherman and and he's a, quite a decent sort. But the father is a net maker and a trader, and they're very proud and of their position in society. Um, can't stop reminding uh, everybody that um, they've got a little bit of wealth, showing off their fancy horse and their carriage, um, and and they're sort of heartless. They're not loving in in, a, in an unquestioning way in the way that Margaret is. It's the Boses whose child actually is rescued or stolen, a grandchild is rescued or stolen. And yet I didn't want to um, be too cruel on them because after all they're only victims of their circumstances. You couldn't expect people whose livelihood had collapsed, whose family members had died, um, whose uh, home was no longer uh, livable, whose son had been kidnapped, um, to be sweet-natured and, and, and honey-like in their behavior, that would be expecting too much. You couldn't maybe expect them to be glad that they've got the, uh, uh, the sniveling grandchild to look after all on their own, when their, f- their own future is too uncertain. And so I wanted to humanize them as well. In fact, I gave them uh, uh, one of literature's least likely sex scenes, I think. It's the only sex scene in the book. Um, in which Margaret overhears them making love. Margaret has never had sex in her life, and she wasn't quite sure what the noises were. But in the end, I don't want to reduce any characters to being um, without, without redemption. And in that one instance, the Boses, that twenty, well, probably that two minutes of having sex late at night, um, out in a destroyed America, on the toxic ground, beneath a dilapidated barn roof. Um, uh, reminded us that uh, that humanity is hard to repress entirely. You mentioned a horse earlier, and mm. I noticed there were a couple of scenes in this book in which 
animals are killed. Somebody, somebody's forced to kill an animal. Yeah. And it, it strikes me that this is kind of a really, uh, a, a very American theme that uh, of somebody who, who's brought to the point uh, where they're forced to, to kill a, a domesticated animal that, that, that is or, or could have been their friend. And I'm, mm. I, I was uh, forged in the fire of Jack London by my father, who, mm, who was too, a yeah. Jack London fan. And, yeah. and so to build a fire... Oh, absolutely. It, I, that's absolutely <laughs> what a good example. And that helps me understand my own odd relationship with the deaths of animals in my books. Um, and I had not thought of it until this very moment. To build a fire was such an influence on me. The moment when he knew that he couldn't build the fire unless he could warm his hands and he was going to break open the body of the dog and plunge his hands into the entrails of the dog in order, this loved dog, in order to help himself survive. Um, and there was nothing, there was nothing in that act which was, which was dog-hating, was there? It, oh. it was respectful of, of dog. But it was also realistic. Um, yeah, it's a great, great, um, a great story that I recommend everyone to run out and buy to build a fire by Jack London. But the problem for me, one of the things that I want to do when I'm trying to um, uh, emphasize the natural world and the way in which we've become separated in the ways that I've just said to you is that I mostly have got a, a, an English readership. And the English readership is, is very squeamish. I'm generalizing terribly here because some of them aren't, but they're very squeamish about the natural world. And we have a very squeamish natural world, a domestic natural world in England anyway. We don't have wildernesses. We don't have uh, wild animals that can kill us. We hardly have any poisonous snakes. The, world is not, the natural world in the UK is not going to do us much harm. And so there's a tendency in Britain, and I think elsewhere, to imagine that the natural world is all about rainbows, and daffodils and kingfishers. You know, they smell good, they sound good, and they look good. And that's not the truth of the natural world at all. In fact, to think that's the truth of the natural world is to do the natural world a disservice because you have to look at all the dark sides of the natural world. You have to accept that the natural world is more comprised of compost than it is of kingfishers. You know, that's the, sca the span. But to say that is not a ghoulish thing to say. It's not, it's not relishing discomfort to say that. You have to recognize that the natural world is made up of dead slugs and shells and, and bad smells and, and rotting potatoes and moss and kingfishers. It's all those things. And so, and so to treat animals in that, in that primal way uh, in which the animal mankind engages with the animal horse and kills it is just to remind people of the honesty of the, of, of the the, the longer-term relationships between humankind and, and, and animals. Um, people say that was a cruel act. And that uh, uh, one person came up to me after reading and said that, you know, I took um, a boyish delight in cruelty to animals. And uh, she wasn't a vegetarian. I am. She goes back to her fridge. She's going to open her, her fridge door. And inside that fridge door are going to be great red bloody slabs of dead animals. And so, you know, it's entire hypocrisy. And, uh, and I'm a dog lover and, all, you know, we've got a house full of, um, of animals. But in fiction, I take a much tougher view. And I treat animals in fiction like animals have always been treated in fiction uh, as a kind of a metaphor and a device to, to show up the savagery of humankind. Because the criticism isn't of the dead horse. 
The criticism isn't of the horse that's slaughtered. The criticism or the, or the question that is being raised is about humankind. And we're not that much different from those animals, are we're, we? No, we're not. Especially in we're this not. book, which, which takes us much closer to that level. We are different in, in, in the significant things that I've mentioned before. Narrative. Narrative, consciousness, memory. You know, those, those triplets, they belong together. When you started writing this book, I, I'm wondering, you, there's a, a theme in here of, of, of dormant America, mm. of America asleep and, and, mm. and waking. And I think this is tied to something else that I found really interesting in this book, direction, mm. east and west. Absolutely. It, it's, it's phenomenally important, this book. And, and those directions, just those two directions, not north or south, east and west, yeah. are brought up constantly. Tell us mm. a little bit about that, the tension between the two. It was the mischievous side of me that, that uh, rather obviously decided very early on that if I was going to undo America in a political sense, that I could undo the whole mythology of America, the, the, whole, um, the whole existing narrative of, of America, which was to send them eastwards, to have them uh, deferring to an ocean, which has suddenly become big again, because that's trouble with the, um, the Atlantic Ocean. It's now, it's now just a hopover. You know, I got over it in five and a half hours. You can deliver bombs to Afghanistan in 18 hours from here. But there was a time when that ocean was so big that it was hard to get across. And so the people are fleeing to the East Coast in a reversal of what really happened. Instead of people fleeing over the Atlantic to find hope here, people were fleeing to the East, in my book, are fleeing to the East Coast to find hope in Europe. So this was my little boyish delight that I would be unstitching the American dream. What I didn't take account of, although I knew about it, of course, was that, that, that narrative, given that it's been around for thousands of years, knows a thing or two. It's smart. It understands things. And the American narrative has only been here, you know, the European-based narratives have only been here for a few hundred years, but still, it knows a lot. And the American ex- narratives that, that were already existing before I wrote The Pest House were all westward bound, you know, from... Uh, Lewis and Clark, um, uh, Grapes of Wrath, uh, Oregon Trail, um, uh, uh, West, you know, the, the the prairie things, you know, the 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 the, um, the uh, pioneer stories, uh, um, Thelma and Louise, even um, Borat, even I mean, you know, Borat's going west in order to get Pamela Anderson, but everyone's going west for some reason or other. The acre of land, the freedom from the police. Um, the, uh, the Mormons going west in order to be able to um, uh, uh, follow their religion freely. There's the, the Dust Bowl refugees going in order to get the job. There's always a reason for going west in the American narrative. And when occasionally you find a book that goes east, such as, or a film such as um, Midnight Cowboy, it's only going east in order to show you that the western valleys are sort of better. So these snooty New Yorks can be made to look forward. Or Mr. Deeds goes to Washington. There's another example. So as I progressed with this book, trying to make the narrative go east, the, the pre-existing narratives were struggling against me and wanting me to abandon that idea. And in the end, there was a tussle between east and west in this book, which I'm sure you picked up on. And at the end of the book, west won the day. West rescued the book, in a way. The pre-existing narratives of America took charge again, which is why I even surprised myself that I came up with a book which was westward bound and was optimistic, when for so long it looked as if it was going to be eastward bound and pessimistic. And for that, I'm very grateful. 
can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Yeah, I'm. It's, I, I'm tell you about the ideas behind the book because um, uh, the characters and plots, you know, haven't uh, um, started to show themselves very much yet. I'm writing a book, uh, and I'll get, I, you know, the the very description is going to send you to sleep. In fact, whenever I describe my new books to my publishers, they 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 all kind of look in their handbags or, or kind of cover their faces in embarrassment because they're always ideas led. Um, but the new book is about the, what I think is. As, as the failings of Western democracy, of bourgeois liberalism, and uh, but also its strengths. What I have in mind is this, that I've been a political person all of my life of the left, but I'm also kind of an English, an English polite person. And therefore, I've never quite been a man of action. I've been a moral man, I think I can claim, claim but I've not been a man of action. And I kind of regret that, because as a kid... There was a moment, a defining moment for me, coming from a very socialist, atheist background, where my father took me around to a friend of his um, called Perkis, who'd fought in the Spanish Civil War. And uh, we went round to his flat, which was on the same estate that we lived in this development, the area we lived, to meet this Perkis. And I knew about him. He'd been in the Spanish Civil War, and he'd uh, volunteered to fight against fascism. And I met him, and I was amazed that he had one arm. He'd lost his arm in the Spanish Civil War. And this struck me as being incredibly heroic, a man of action that, for his principles, had gone and, uh, to another country, a language he didn't speak, as a young man, you know, late teen, he was in 19 when he went, and had lost his arm. But actually, thinking on afterwards, he'd gone to Spain to kill Spaniards in the name of an I- ideology. How far a step is that? from what we have at the moment, which is young, genuine, sincere men, and I know plenty of them because they live in my area in Birmingham, which is a Muslim area, young, sincere Muslims who, uh, for an ideology, a sincere ideology, are prepared to go out and kill strangers for, for the ism that they believe in. Not much of a step, is it? And in between is the other, you know, I, I, I believe in, in uh, a, a, a United Ireland, but I certainly didn't believe in the IRA killing Brummies as they did in 1974, uh, someone not far from where we live was killed in those bombs. So I want to investigate this, the sexiness and the appeal of the man of action, the sense that the moral man who does nothing is, is somehow a failed person. But actually, to just to investigate that, because it doesn't really hold up, and to find out something about myself as well as a man of action and a, and a, and a moral man, to find out something about my own political... Uh, cowardness. So that's what the book is about. Wow, that sounds great. We've been speaking with Jim Crace. His new novel is The Pest House. Thank you for joining me, Jim. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.